Welcome to part three of our series on world building. We talked about why you should design your own campaign setting and where you should start. But what about the people who live there? Come on into the dojo because it's building your world part three, populating your world. This week on the Dungeon Masters Dojo. Citations, DMs, GMs, referees, judges, game operation directors, and all the other varieties of storyteller. This is Lou, and as always, I've been accompanied by the men with the game swagger, like Jagger, Bill, and Scott. Gentlemen, how are we doing this evening? I am fantastic. Although we're talking about a lot of people, it's getting crowded in my cellar here. <laughs> it sure is. So, guys, who lives here? Oh, a bunch of people live in your gaming world. A bunch of them. Well, lead us into it. Well, when we're looking at these um, these people, the populace of the world, I think we really need to determine first, are you going to use the races that are outlined in the Player's Handbook and any of the other publications uh, by Wizards of the Coast, or are you going to uh, go ahead and, and, and design your own? Using the established races can save a tremendous amount of time. A whole lot. But creating original races can give the players a new and fresh perspective on your world and it gives you something different to play with. Let's face it, anything you can throw, especially seasoned players that's brand new, will catch them off guard. We've talked many a times about how we have a lot of veteran players on our table and they know the player's handbook, the DMG, all the addendums, inside and out. So you throw something new at them, like building your own races, they, they eat it up. I mean, they, they like, okay, what about this? And what about that? And what about that? And then all of a sudden the questions start coming one after another, after another, after another. You better be ready for it. Yeah, and, and you don't have to populate your world with strictly home-brewed races either. You can throw a couple of them in there, and that'll be just fine. And then you can use established races. Oh, that- a little blend of each. Like, I mean, we in our world, we have our... We have the races that we built, which is fairly extensive, actually. And then we also accept the ones that are in the player's handbook as well. So that literally doubles up our numbers and then some. So when you're doing that, if you're using races that are that are in the player's handbook or other publications, you got to ask yourself, where do they fit in this world? They may not uh, fit neatly in your world like they would in, in Faerun or any of the other campaign settings. So ask yourself those questions. And then... What is different about them and why? Because the history of your world is going to dictate the similarities and the differences of those those established races from, from the publications that Wizards of the Coast puts out. You, you may have to do some minor alterations with some home, homebrew rules uh, to make the, the established stuff fit into your world, especially if your world is so different. Ours is not very different, but... Enough where we've made some small uh, alterations to some of the existing races. Not many, not many, but a couple. Yeah, and that just makes them more of a feature in your world, right? They're very similar to the stuff you'd find in these other publications, but all these little adjustments you make kind of sets them in your world as their home. And and when you make your homebrew stuff, what's their origin? Where did they come from? Yeah. Uh, We've talked about 
a lot about the, the map making and the world building and, and where the people possibly have come from, but you need an origin. I mean, are, are they a result of an intervention by a deity, which was part of the inspiration for our world? Uh, you also have, is there interbreeding occurred? Can it occur? Can, yeah, and that's a question to ask. Is And we asked ourselves that question too. What what races can produce hybrids and what others what others can't because that's that's an important question to ask because you have to you have to account for that in in your game world mm-hmm. because someone is going to want to play that half elf half dwarf so how do you stat them out what special abilities do they get um so you need to be prepared for that and i checked the player's handbook there is no dwarf in there 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 is not and and i often wonder what they would look like but I, can't, I can't imagine that much hair on an ear. But everyone has an origin, you know. Uh, where where uh, where did they come from? Why did they end up the way the way they are? We have our elven species was, had a schism thousands of years ago, mm-hmm. and they split off into three different um, factions. Different yeah. factions, and while they're still very elven and fey like, they they kind of developed their own history and civilization based on their experiences and the ideologies of of those leaders that caused the schism so one group was very very warlike they were they were tired of being being attacked so their ideology was well let us attack first a good defense is a great offense yeah others uh, wanted to return home to kind of make up for the wrongs of their ancestors and others simply settled in a forest and became an entirely different different group. But the history speaks to that. What's the path of evolution? Because if you're talking long-term, in our world, we're, we've, we've gone back, um, I think the timeline I built was something like 20,000 years. It was, it was lengthy. Yeah, so there is actually time for actual evolution. Now, it may be uh, precipitated and or accentuated by magics in your world, it was it wasn't ours, so things moved considerably quicker, which would normally take a hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand, took twenty in our world because it was driven by an outside force. But but one of the paths that a lot of the races took was just simp- straight out evolution. It wasn't interbreeding; it was just simply that race evolving, and that is another point of origin. For the races. So we, we kind of touched on a few in our world. Yeah, and that may seem a little strange to use, like, concrete science in the development of the, the, the people that live in your world, but it certainly has a place. Well, I, I'm a nerd. That's what yep. I do. And, and it's not always divine intervention. It's it's not always magical experimentation. It's Sometimes, simply time. Yeah, people just uh, evolve. Mm-hmm. Takes us to our next point. As these people evolve, who gets along with who? Uh, who, who who plays nice and who does not? Yeah, and why? Right. Well, we did say we had a schism amongst just the particular flavor of elf, and there are three completely different ideologies between the three of them. Now, there's a lot of similarities because of where they came from. They get along okay with each other. Uh, in our world, they're not really all that close to one another. They are separated a fair piece. Yeah, very, but, very, very but who do they, separate. But one race doesn't get along with any of their neighbors. One of them gets along with all their neighbors, and the other one is very, very selective about who they get along with. Yeah, and that comes directly from their origins in, in a lot of cases. But then there's there's others 
that you know the dwarven people are fiercely independent so they're they're of the mindset that well we can do it all by ourselves and we we don't we don't need you um Mm -hmm. there's um you're a resource not a friend yeah exactly you know the 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 orcs that live there are pretty xenophobic because of the bad experiences they've had with with the other the other races of the world being Mm -hmm. uh pushed uh farther and farther away from from their homelands so Asking the question of, you know, why they are the way they are is is important in in the development of, of them as as a, a collective people. Well, a lot of times it's looking at what's the catalyst? What was that one turning point? This is your world, and nothing, you don't have to have anything gray. You can have a very specific time, point, event that would delineate that, that point. This is where it all started. And you can, in your world, it's very easy to, to set a catalyst. To, where, did, where did the rivalry and or camaraderie start between your nations, your peoples, your races? It, was it over land, water, minerals? Is anyone neutral? Is anyone in the world just says, you know something? I don't care what you do. Just leave me alone. Maybe there was an old alliance that, one group of people did not follow through on. And because of that, there's been a centuries long hatred or dislike of those other people. That or the have and have nots. Um, gee, your, your people are sitting in this mountainous range and all uh, the only thing you export is gems and minerals and gold. You have it by the bazillion and everyone else wants it. You can charge whatever price you want. You get all this coin for these things that everyone else wants. The fantasy world version of De Beers. Yeah, but we, in the meantime, have nothing to eat. Yes. And disease is running rampant, and there's that, that resentment. I think you can uh, really uh, flesh out the people of your world by taking real-world examples, either from the present day or from from history of our of our own world. When we built our world, a lot in the past in history. We took a lot from the past, and that's what we used as the template for building our races. It's whatever works for your world, obviously. Yeah. Um, that's what we envisioned. That's what we came up to. We do our point-counterpoint stuff that we did for hours and hours on pretty much every point uh, to the point of, I said the word point a lot of times, didn't I? Very we, pointed use of the word point. Good point. Lou's over there laughing at us. <laughs> um, we delved into history quite a bit to get to where we, we wanted for our races. And we, like I said, we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and smoothed it out till we finally got to what we liked and all right, that's it. And then we went to the next one. If you don't have anyone to bounce off ideas, just look to history and look at the races that are out there, the cultures, how they how they did things. And doesn't mean you have to emulate that exactly. You can take a part of one and a part of another and part of another and blend them together and make your own. Yeah, you can use it as a template and then and then add your own own flair for whatever fantasy race it is that you're you're trying to design. I think it's also important to Kind of identify, are there any uh, formally declared hostilities amongst uh, certain nations? Uh, There's always formally declared hostilities. Yeah, is there a war raging? Yeah. Um, and we touched upon that with, with our world, that there was a history between certain nations and, and, and people that, 
you know, there's there's still even though there's there's no war raging, there's still a lot of open hostility because of some things, some transgressions that had occurred in in past history, mm-hmm. and that's important to identify as well because that brings into it uh, a certain dynamic when there's um, engagement between other player characters from nations that have historically been uh, rival nations. Correct. And and drama and conflict, you know, that that moves a story and that's that's also an important piece to have in your campaign. Your drama and your controversy is not only a driving point, but it's entertaining as hell because your players will glom onto that. They will, "Oh, I don't like him." Okay, well, I'm really not going to like him. Which is a, a fun to watch as long as it doesn't get out of hand. Yep. Uh, that uh, your position as the game master is to make sure it does not get out of hand. Let them prank each other. Uh, I'm uh, he's asleep. I'm going to tie the end of his sleeping bag so he can't get out, and then I'm going to slowly pour water on it and make bear sounds and make it sound like I'm bears peeing on his his sleeping bag or or something along those lines. I mean, just l- let him have fun with it. Don't go camping with Bill. <laughs> Not advised. <laughs> See? So another another thing to ask is uh, where do the people of the world come from? You know, what are, their, what, are, what are the nations, what are the countries, what are the political entities that they're, um, they're a part of? You know, what's, what's their culture like? What's their government like? We, we talked about that in the last episode a little bit. What do things look like in, in, in their homeland? You know, mm-hmm. what, are, what is a, a shared cultural identity, a shared religious identity? Um, well, a lot of your nations are going to be delineated by the topographic features of the land, says the map maker. If there's a major, major river, bisecting a giant chunk of land, chances are pretty good there's a nation on either side. Whether there's a war between the two, whether there's trade and commerce, whether they're they're allies, that's for you to decide. If there's a mountain range on either side of the mountain range is quite likely two different nations. These large topographical features are often the, the boundaries between nations, and that'll help you determine the size, the influence of any particular nation versus any other. So we go back to make your map. Yeah, it's it's important. Those natural boundaries that are on your map are are going to uh, tell you where uh, certain nations are, and you could have a pretty good idea of whether or not uh, they're going to get along. Well, it's going to give rise to a plethora of uh, of encounters because border wars are border wars, and even if you, they're allies, just getting over the border sometimes. Is difficult, whether it's the terrain that makes it difficult or the fact they're watching their borders and you have to identify yourself as an ally. Not because they're at war, because they're trying to guard whatever they have for resources or people or or whatever. Um, just the fact that there is a, a delineated border there and trying to get over it might be something you want to keep into mind when you are moving your characters from one nation to another. And uh, let's take this opportunity to uh, step across the borders and uh, have a bit of a break. And we're back. Thanks for letting me know. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So races. Lou. Let's make one. Let's make one. 
Okay, let's start with something that is uh, somebody forest dwelling by an ocean line. Elves, done. That's a wrap. Um, uh, custom. Oh, custom. Not All player's right. handbook. Let's forest. See. Okay, forest. How big of a forest? Um, Sequoia large. Big. big. Wow. It's big. Big. Okay. Uh, by the shoreline. Yeah. Big. Rivers. Lots of rivers, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, rivers cutting through these oh, dense forests. I got one for you. Let, let's let's take something um, uh, that's kind of sort of well-known and kind of throw it a new twist. Okay. Okay. Short in stature, uh, relatively powerful, um, usually kind of furry. Uh, no, not even. Sounds like you. Oh, no. okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It does sound like me, um, except for the top. All right, so let's say we take a dwarven-like race. A dwarven-like race. So And put them in the woods instead of the mines. Okay, all right. So the first thing that comes to mind is why. Why would the dwarves leave the comfort of their tunnels and caves to come and live in a forest where there's a lot of open space? They're not so, comfortable anymore. This is a homebrew world, so oh. it's different. All right, so they're not comfortable anymore. So maybe, maybe, maybe they never started there. Maybe they haven't. Maybe they were driven from their tunnels and what, their what, what if they never came from the tunnels in the first place? Then here is where they are. This is where they are. They're in, they're in the forest. So they're in the forest. Um, lumberjacks. Naturally. They're, they're strong. They're stout. Let's cut down trees. And build boats with them. Because okay. why not? Um, well, I mean, it's like a house that you can move, so that's cool. Yep. And if there's a lot of rivers, there's going to be a lot of need for commerce. And, and shorelines. Those would be the roads, right? And if you have big trees, you can make some big boats. Big boats. So we have a short, stout, powerful race uh, that really likes to swing axes, but it has nothing to do with another race you know that, that everyone's familiar with because they build boats. Well, maybe they're not as short and stout as they would be if they were confined to caverns. Maybe they're a little bit taller, still powerfully built. Maybe well, a little bit well, taller. Well, it would make it easier to climb the trees if, you could actually put your hands on it where your stomach yes. doesn't get in the way. So yeah, I could see a little taller, a little a little thinner, but powerfully built. A lot of sinew. Um, let them climb trees. Let them cut them down. They're they're building ship. So they're, they're shipwrights. Yeah, maybe not seaworthy vessels, but still rivers can be quite large uh, as well. Um, so there would a, be you can need. get a lot of boards out of a tree that big. You sure can. So their homes would probably be made out of out of out of wood uh, cabins perhaps, mm -hmm. long houses. I can see a lot of intricate carving. Yep. Scrimshaw, but out of wood. Yeah. That's their medium for everything. So maybe they make furniture too. Probably some fine furniture. Yep. You can only build so many boats, so many cabins, so many long you houses. You got to do something with the small pieces. So many bridges. Yeah. So you build furniture. They would probably look a little different, certainly, uh, you know, if they had some some dwarven lineage, there would be beards involved, uh, decorated beards, maybe. A I, I can see those beards not necessarily long and strewn with beads and bones and stuff, but cut into almost trimmed into patterns. So it would be almost an art form in the beard itself. Yeah, and and they would their their skin tone would be would be different from what you would be used to a dwarf having. You know, they would be out in the sun more often, so maybe their their uh, their skin would be uh, a darker brown from from being exposed to the sun more frequently. 
darker skin, lighter hair. Yep. Yeah. So those 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 uh, dark reds or dark browns that maybe we're accustomed to seeing from dwarves would be lighter shades. Strawberry blonde. Yeah. Blonde dwarves. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Blonde dwarves with uh, kind of a nutty brown uh, skin color. They'd probably have a lot of uh, creases, uh, uh, smile lines, uh, crow's feet from being out in the sun. So their 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 dress may also be different because of of, of the necessity. So maybe those those uh, heavy uh, dwarven boots from mining would be replaced with maybe uh, lighter boots, light leather, um, climbing spikes. I can see them in linen. Because up and down the trees, a lot of hard work. Yep. You're not in a cool environment underground, so you're out in the open. So I can see linens as opposed to leathers and things like that. And perhaps even the linen would be an art form in itself. Maybe they'd have a, a, a lot of a, a lot of sheeps, and there would be a lot of intricate dyes, and that might be something that is a rather rather large and sought after textile for those people. Is those those fine. Uh, dwarven linens um, mm-hmm. with their bright colors uh, because they would probably be dyeing uh, or making dyes from the large number of, of, of berries or, or, or other types plants of plants. and barks and things like that. Yeah, I can see that. Lou, are you happy so far? So far. I, I have a couple questions, but I'll let you go on for Oh, no, go ahead. Ask those questions. So now we got our basic new dwarf built. Yeah. How would you stat them up? Um, it's going to be different. It, it's 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 going to be, but I don't know that it would be entirely different. I would think f- they would still be a very hardworking, hardy race, so their constitution would still still be. I would see instead of strength and constitution being your key stats, dex and constitution. Dexterity being, because they're climbing up they're and climbing. down trees yep. or they're navigating uh, river vessels. So I yeah, it would, for balance and, and so I would see those stats shifting a little bit. Right. Um, I don't see much. I really don't see much of anything else shifting a lot. So if there's any bonuses, those bonuses would go into Dex and uh, first Constitution second for those in the D and D world or your equivalent thereof. So yeah, as far as statting, I, I don't see it shifting too much because they're still, like I said, like Scott said, they're still hardworking. Yep. Just the work they're doing is different, and the environment has changed. So the strength of hammering through stone in the traditional dwarf would be replaced by the dexterity of, of climbing and rope work and, and high work up on, on the tree limbs where Constitution would probably remain about the same. I like this dwarf. I would play one. Other questions, Lou? Anyway. Um, really, that, that'd be my – if I was designing a, a race – that would be, you know, some of the first things I looked at. Everything you guys touched on, then the stats, and then maybe hindrances and abilities and hindrances that follow it. I, th- I think culturally they would be a, a fiercely independent people, probably because there would be a multitude of smaller communities set inside the forest. So these smaller communities would be, would be uh, just self-reliant. Um, there would be part of a larger network of 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 these smaller communities, but uh, they would be a fiercely independent people because they would be it would be their community 
pretty much against against the wild. So they well, would be well, agreed because I don't see large cities. Large cities involve large expanses of buildings and walls and things like that. That's deforestation, which is counterproductive to their livelihood. So agreed. I think small communities that have a network, uh, maybe a gathering spot of one point or another where the elders would go to or the the governing bodies or representatives would go to once in a while, every once, two, three, five, ten years, to hammer out some new laws or rules and then back to their communities they go. But, yeah, they would be fiercely independent for their community. Uh, first, their race second, uh, their trade third. I think there would be uh, protection would be primarily militia-based, although I can certainly see them having a standing army of substantial size and strength, but for these these isolated communities, having having a, 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 a small, competent force of citizen soldiery would be would 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 probably be how how they would look militarily. I, I would I would model them after the Marines. Yeah. Even the cook grabs a gun and fires. So the men, the women, older children, everyone works, everyone defends. There, there is no one that sits back. So every single individual shy of the children is uh, someone to be reckoned with when it comes to the defense of the, of the community or the area. There'd probably be a lot of national pride as a result of that. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can see them not so much being a monarchy as maybe a republic of some sort. A republic, definitely. Sounds good. I, I like it. Would, would you play that? Yes, I would. Excellent. We touched on briefly uh, their government. We touched briefly on their exports, their imports. Obviously, it would be anything else they need they couldn't glean from the forest, which would probably be hard metals and minerals, tools, things of that nature. But with a an abundance of resources for trees, let's see, everyone wants to build, and wood is the easiest thing to build with. So you have a very, very... Uh, Exportable product. We touched on their defenses, um, their offensive capabilities. Architecture. Architecture, it can go anywhere. So you can go anywhere from like a Viking longhouse to individual homes to uh, hovels to longhouses. Uh, you can go anywhere as you want with, with something like that because your resources are abundant I think it would, a lot of it would be determined by the terrain of the land. And the size of the community, maybe? The size yep. of the community as well. Yep. It could be a whole bunch of series of small houses versus multi-stories. There could be everyone lives in one house, a tenement. It's a lot really easy to go to work when one alarm goes up and 20 people get up. I would think that their their food supply would be uh, primarily gathered from the forest, wild game. Uh, I could see gardens. But maybe not massive farms. Yeah, I wouldn't see farms, but yeah, I'd see gardens. Um, with the exception of maybe moderately sized uh, uh, sheep farms for uh, linen productions or whatever have you. Well, as, as forest goes down, it's going to open up, especially when you're dealing with something the size of a sequoia. Yeah. It's going to leave a, a very large hole in the canopy. So once it's done and it's processed, that tree and or the one next to it, it's going to leave a fairly sizable open area be, until the underbrush grows. So would they be replanting stuff to refill the, what they what they took? I would say yes, 
but it would be a gradual process. I right. mean, you're dealing with a, a yeah. very, very large tree. And I so, can see them being good custodians of, oh, of oh, yeah. the forest that they, they live in. But for the first 10, 20 years, until those those seedlings really do gather root, you have underbrush to deal with. So there's a good area for your sheep to move into. And once you hit the first 10 years and a lot of those trees begin to really start to grow and, and build a little bit, 20, 30 feet, 40 feet high, whatever, and start building a canopy of their own, even at low level, that grazing area is going to not be as, it's not going to be viable. Right. But in that time, you've dropped a number of other trees. So you just keep moving your your herd from area to area to area. They graze the underbrush until it starts growing up, and you move them to another one to allow them. And now, let's say they're grazing, they're droppings, things like that. It's fertilizing the area. They've now seeded some some new trees. Once the trees start taking, move them to the next area. And now you have tilled, fertilized, cleared area that will help propagate the next generation of trees and you move them on to the next area and it puts a new spin on uh races and perhaps they don't even cut the trees down maybe the largest of those trees that are there they simply turn into one of the tenement type structures that bill mentioned oh makes Um, sense using you know their 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 most skilled craftsmen they they hollow them out and make varying levels and um they live within within the tree yeah they could top the tree now, topping a tree that's 200 feet tall might be me. You, you top it, and it's 60 feet high. The stump is 60 feet high. That's three, four levels easily of nice, beautiful, high-vaulted ceilings with all the carvings, and that becomes your tenement is the, the base of the tree. And their woodworkers may be sought after the, the world over. Um, if you were to uh, hire one of these woodworkers, you, you know it would be something of a – prestige for whatever family or, or monarch it was that, that had uh, one on retainer. Oh, yeah. I, I, I hired uh, a carver, one of our dwarven carvers. Uh, he's putting together all the, the mantles and all the lintels uh, and all the doorways in the house, in my manor house. The manor house is being built for 10 years, but when he gets done, uh, all the woodwork is going to be hand-touched. and He has, of course, his apprentices and things like that. And, He's under retainer for the furniture as well, and 10, 15 years later, he's moved on with a, a very hefty sum. Several of his apprentices are now going for their master's license, and off he moves back home or to his next project. Sounds like an intriguing race. Yeah. Now I want to build one. We should. Well, that pretty much wraps up our Building Your World Part 3. So in conclusion... People are the lifeblood of your world. Build them with care. This is where the characters meet the world itself. Interactions and responses drive the the life you breathe into your characters and your world. So breathe deep and enjoy everyone you meet. And that's part three of our series of world building, populating your world. Part four will be coming soon, so keep your ears open. That's going to conclude this episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Please subscribe to the podcast for more great content. If you'd like to hear a particular topic, you can reach us on Facebook at the Dungeon Masters Dojo, or you can drop us an email at thedungeonmastersdojo at gmail.com. Thank you, and have a good day.